0: Welcome to the Air Health R Health podcast. I'm Erica, a lung and ICU doctor. Every day in my ICU and clinic, I see patients who are there from breathing unhealthy air, and I started Air Health R Health to focus more upstream on the importance of healthy air for healthy people and healthy economies. Thanks for joining me. I had initially planned to do a blog and podcast on pollen this week but seeing the clouds of tear gas filling my city and others around America shifted my focus. It has been surprising hearing tear gas referred to as a non-lethal intervention. As a lung doctor, I know the air we breathe can be lethal over both the short and long term, and I wondered why tear gas was considered non-lethal. I am delving deeper into this on the blog and the podcast this week. As a mother myself, The stories of the children have been particularly distressing, and I could not help but think of potential lifelong consequences with exposure to such an airway irritant. As a lung doctor, I have been further concerned thinking about all of my patients. I have had to send patients to the ER after exacerbations from inhaling far less noxious compounds. I even had one patient with severe asthma COPD overlap syndrome come close to respiratory arrest in my office lobby because someone was wearing perfume. It is hard to imagine that tear gas would not be dangerous to them. With more than 1 in 10 Oregonians suffering from asthma, my first thought on seeing the extent of the tear gas deployed in our country was, this is going to kill people. It was unsurprising to find out that someone has already died acutely after exposure to pepper spray due to a heart attack, nor was I surprised to find cases of airway disease described in the medical literature after exposure to tear gas. A young woman who attended the protest recently and inhaled tear gas died a few days later. I, along with other physicians, worry there will be more death and long-term disease, both directly from tear gas exposure and due to the use of this substance while we are in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. I think sometimes the things that sicken us are hard for us to see, both as individuals and as a scientific community. It took us a long time to realize that something as ubiquitous as a cigarette was actually killing around half of its regular users. When we think of lethal events, a lot of us think of guns or heart attacks. A gun is so direct and lethal and final. It's harder to see the things that make us ill over the longer time frame and finally accumulate in that heart attack. But in my job every day, I see people dying of these things that are very common in the community and not always lethal, but they are still lethal enough to be putting the life at risk of the patient in front of me. I care for patients dying from influenza. I care for patients dying from tobacco and other forms of breathing poor air including the asthmatic there, with a severe exacerbation from allergies and a high pollen count. What we breathe matters. Even if an intervention is not as lethal as shooting someone with a gun, even some degree of lethality needs to be weighed very heavily, especially if we are considering using it on a large population and when children and the elderly are present. So why has it been referred to as safe? I tried to find studies on this and found only very short-term animal exposures and a study by the National Institute of Justice done in the lab at the University of San Diego in 2001. It was a study of 34 police training staff and cadets with an average age of 31.7 years. They put goggles on them so they had no eye effects and they were given one inhalation of oleoresin capsicum OC aka capsaicin or pepper spray and inhaled it versus a placebo which means a neutral substance. They did lung function testing, as well as checking blood pressure, heart rate, and other measurements at 1 minutes, 5 minutes, and 9 minutes. They did not find differences in lung function testing in that very brief window, but did find a statistically significant increase in heart rate and blood pressure. The blood pressure difference maintained throughout the 9 minutes. There were only 8 people in the group that had a history of either airway disease, smoking, or inhaler use. These were not further characterized, and they were all lumped together. I have to say, this is a very unusual study. With only 34 participants, it could in no way be expected to be powered enough to find a result of interest for a larger population, and regarding the very important question for those with respiratory disease, the number is so small and there are not enough details to actually answer the questions about effects on people with airway disease. Not experiencing the significant ocular pain or eye pain by wearing goggles probably resulted in underestimating the true blood pressure and heart rate effects of spraying someone with pepper spray. People in the study received 1 second spray directed from 5 feet away, and they were limited to only 5 seconds of exposure before being removed. This did not examine repeated spray exposures, which the authors acknowledge commonly occur in the field. It also only used an aerosol form, and not the liquid or foam forms that are also commonly used. I could not find this study reported in a more scientific form in any peer-reviewed medical journal which tells me it was more likely designed for use of law enforcement than to truly understand health effects, though that is speculation on my part. I did a PubMed search with the main author, title, etc., and could not find it. I think at some point I may reach out to some of the researchers if I have bandwidth. It's interesting to read the discussion. I'm not sure if it's that the university researchers involved in this study knew that it was not valid to generalize the findings to a larger population, for all the reasons I mentioned before, Not enough people, can't make any claims about effects on smokers or those with airway disease, these were young healthy people wearing goggles with only five second exposure, etc. But then we get to the final paragraphs of the study, and it seems that these may have been written by some of the non-physician authors. Despite all the above scientific caveats, the authors of those last paragraphs say that the inhalation poses no significant risk in terms of respiratory or pulmonary function, even though the paragraphs immediately prior state that this is not possible to be concluded. It seems that the point of this study was to have some scientific-looking data and tables to get to one of the concluding paragraphs, which says, quote, This study will aid law enforcement agencies when facing accusations of excessive force based on the unfounded contention that OC exposure results in respiratory compromise study data will assist law enforcement agencies in deterring and defending themselves from litigation that can have a negative impact on the well-being and morale of their agencies and more directly on their personnel and field officers, end quote. To reiterate, this was an underpowered study in conditions that do not reflect frequent practice in the real world and also did not include the elderly or enough of a population of those with airway diseases, whom I call members of the Twitchy Airways Club. I actually found the sustained increase in blood pressure at 9 minutes, even under young healthy subject conditions wearing goggles with only one inhalation, to be somewhat alarming. Given the burden of cardiovascular disease in the United States, as well as the recent death in custody of an inmate from a heart attack after pepper spray exposure, increasing the mean arterial pressure in a sustained fashion, particularly with repeat doses, could cause significant health problems. More helpful studies to truly understand the actual amount of threat to human health posed by tear gas would follow people exposed to pepper spray or tear gas for longer periods evaluating months to years later as we would expect effects to show up in that time frame if they are significant in the long term data here is still limited though a 2014 study in turkey of people who had been exposed on multiple occasions to tear gas is interesting to review they have also had protests with extensive tear gas deployed on the population Researchers evaluated 93 people exposed to tear gas and 55 people who had not been exposed. They had findings concerning for elevated risk of airway disease on their lung function tests by a marker of something called the FEV1 to FVC ratio and the MMFR, which are two measures we look at on lung function tests to tell us about increased resistance in the airways and potential obstruction. People also filled out an occupational exposure questionnaire and People who'd been exposed to tear gas were twice as likely to have symptoms of airway disease as well, including chest tightness, trouble breathing with both exercise and simply walking on flat ground, coughing in the morning, and having significant mucus and phlegm in their lungs. This study did control for smoking status as well, and found that the combination of smoking and tear gas was particularly risky for worsened airway disease, which is yet another reason not to smoke. However, non-smokers also had worsened airway function and increased symptoms compared to non-smokers who were not exposed. This is concerning for not only protesters, who may be exposed to more than one dose of tear gas, as well as bystanders, but also for law enforcement officials who may be breathing these compounds more frequently. If they have been told there are no long-term consequences, they may also be unaware of a risk to themselves of developing airway disease from using these agents. Concerning in the COVID-19 pandemic, even one exposure can increase the risk of viral infection of the lungs. This was found in a study by our own military on young, healthy recruits. Tear gas is the name for a collection of compounds designed to induce pain through severe irritant means, whether in the eyes, skin, or lungs. Often, O-chlorobenzolidine, aka CS, which was looked at in this study of military recruits. In these generally young and healthy individuals, exposure to CS more than doubled the rate of pneumonia, bronchitis, and viral illness in the weeks following exposure. This study further suggests that CS can cause significant airway disease in healthy lungs since this is data for young, healthy military recruits in basic training. We know that those protesting for civil rights also include elderly, children, and medically vulnerable. Therefore, the rates of those affected and sickened will be higher. We certainly also have police officers serving who have chronic medical conditions including hypertension, asthma, and COPD. People die from these diseases every day, and now we are in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic and our government is releasing a substance that doubles the rate of its most lethal complication, which is the viral infection of the lungs. Releasing these chemicals on a general population cannot be characterized as a non-lethal intervention at the population level. There are surely people who will die from this tool if deployed in large numbers. Asthma affects around 11% of the population in Oregon, and tear gas could be a lethal cause of bronchospasm, provoking severe respiratory distress and potential sudden respiratory collapse in people with asthma. I also worry that the significant increase in heart rate and blood pressure on a population with cardiovascular disease, in large numbers, could tip people over the edge into more serious events such as heart attacks, strokes, etc. Indiscriminately firing tear gas into a crowd will have the risk of killing people, and it must be considered as an intervention with the potential for lethal effect. When we study medications to determine their safety in people, we look at them in large populations and document the comorbidities of those exposed to the substance. Declaring a substance safe in the absence of these studies is likely an error and does not pass the plausibility test if the population exposed includes those with underlying airway disease, particularly for substance known to cause actual burn injury on the skin. This has been the conclusion of others reviewing the literature as well. In conjunction with the circulating COVID-19 pandemic currently, firing a substance that not only increases the risk of viral infection, but is going to force people to remove their masks, cough forcefully and touch their eyes, etc., must risk worsened spread of the pandemic, even if those who are symptomatic stay home, since we know there is pre-symptomatic spread of COVID-19. Pepper spray, like viruses, does not discriminate. It can affect protesters, bystanders, and the police themselves. Every life is precious, and exacerbating a pandemic is not a responsible response to peaceful protest. Though it is frequently lost in the discussion, as always, we have to talk about the healthcare expenditures with unhealthy air. I have treated countless patients with asthma in the ICU and clinic, and am now treating patients with COVID-19. This is a severe and devastating virus, resulting in prolonged ICU stays and hospitalizations, not to mention the prolonged recuperations following critical illness. The U.S. spends over $16 billion per year in asthma care and we are going to spend untold sums on COVID-19. Spreading additional COVID-19 cases will lead not only to high health care expenditures, for which we all pay in either premium dollars or taxes to support Medicare or Medicaid, but also the economic instability accompanying the loss of breadwinners and caregivers for families. I work in a life and death field. I know the sinking feeling when we are starting to lose a patient, as well as the surge of adrenaline that occurs in these situations with lives at risk, and we are trained to think clearly in these situations. I have also worked with patients that have been violent or verbally abusive towards me and other staff. We train very carefully in how to de-escalate and control these situations and have precise ethical steps we are empowered to take depending on the situation. I also use medications that are not safe that can have bad or even lethal health effects, and I take that responsibility very seriously. We always weigh the risks and benefits of each intervention on medication along with patient and staff safety. When I am working with patients in the clinic with high deductibles or a donut hole, we also think about the cost of each medication versus its benefit to their lives and potential risks, low though those risks may be. Tear gas is a high cost substance in both human health and downstream healthcare expenditures to treat those suffering from its exposure. It is time for careful reflection on the true risks and benefits of tear gas, particularly in our current situation with a circulating pandemic. I cannot imagine it is worth the human or healthcare costs to be using it in such volumes. I have sent a letter along with other physicians expressing my concern to my mayor and city council. I suggest you consider doing the same. For Twitchy Airways Club members, if you are engaging in activity where tear gas is likely to be used, consider whether you have to go or whether alternative expressive acts may be possible for you. If you feel you have to go, talk to your doctor about it and whether augmenting your inhaled medications and potentially using your rescue inhaler prior to going might be right for you. Make sure to carry a rescue inhaler with you if you are a prescribed one. Have a plan to get to safe, clean air if possible and make sure you go with someone who knows you may have airway disease and can help you get to safety. Also consider sharing your concerns with your elected officials about your health and the use of tear gas. For references on the studies I've mentioned, please visit the accompanying blog post for this episode, as well as my blog post earlier this week. Thank you and stay safe. We're coming to the end of the podcast. For more information about the importance of healthy air, please visit airhealthrhealth.org and follow on Instagram and Facebook. Remember, if you do nothing else, don't light things on fire and breathe them into your lungs. This applies to tobacco, diesel fuel, forests, and more. Thanks for joining me today. I am a full-time physician and not an epidemiologist or public health expert. This podcast is for your education and entertainment, but should not be interpreted as individual medical advice. Please consult with your own healthcare team to determine what is right for your health. Thank you and stay safe.